Level Up Latina partners with working women and mamas alike to guide them in achieving fulfilling career and life goals through financial empowerment, professional or leadership coaching, and personal wellness. Find the unique coaching you need to succeed. You're listening to Vettel, Ceci, and Irene, and we are Level Up Latina. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Level Up Latina podcast. Today we have Amanda Alvarado Ford as our guest. Amanda is the executive director of La Raza Centro Legal, a nonprofit legal aid in San Francisco. We invited Amanda to give her perspective on current immigration trends, particularly on what it means to be an undocumented woman in this day and age. Thank you, Amanda, for being here and for sharing space with us. Welcome, bienvenida. Gracias, Ceci y todas. I'm super happy to be here with you all. And um, it's just truly an honor. I've um, listened to many of your episodes of your Level Up Latina podcast. I love what you all have to say. Obviously, I'm a different generation than you all. I have tremendous respect for you as young professional Latinas. So well done you for starting your own podcast and consulting business. That means a lot. Este, well, before we get started talking about today's topic, Amanda, tell us about um, your background and upbringing and um, how long you've been practicing immigration law. Thank you. Um, so I've um, been, I, I find myself, I, I feel truly blessed to be, um, you know, la hija de inmigrantes. I'm the daughter of farm worker immigrant parents from Mexico. I'm just super, um, you know, grounded in both cultures, like so many of us here in California. So I find myself now, you know, in the mid, my mid-50s, I'm just tremendously grateful for having had the benefit of two cultures. And, you know, I feel very much a, um, in my generation, we called our, ourselves Chicanas. But, you know, now I say, you know, Chicana Latina. And um, so that's my background. And my family settled in the Central Valley here in California. And then opportunities for work led them to um, Santa Clara, where I was born. And I come from a small family, but um, my extended family is quite large. Um, but, um, I'm just really excited to be here. And then I've been practicing law, um, truly, uh, for 29 years next year, it'll be 30 years. I wrapped up and, uh, got my license in 1993. So it's quite a while. And, um, I started out, uh, working for the federal government with the national labor relations board. I was a labor lawyer and, uh, basically a federal prosecutor protecting and defending our, um, labor, uh, labor laws on a national level. And then we ended up, um, I, I was in New York city in New Jersey and then in San Francisco with the feds. And then around, um, early two thousands, I decided to transition to immigration law, left the government and, um, worked with a private practitioner in immigration, learned my craft there, um, from the ground up. Um, as you all know, you know, it, it feels like every legal specialty is its own, body of law that needs to be learned um, from start to finish. And so it was a process. And by by about 2004, I had experience in deportation defense, especially brief writing and researching those matters relating to asylum seekers in our um, nation's immigration courts. And then um, here at La Raza Centro Legal, which is a community-based legal aid in the Mission District of San Francisco, I've been involved here since 2011. And um, I came because um, the DACA program for immigrant youth was announced in 2011, and I wanted to be a part of it. I was a college student during 1986, um, the last am amnistia, immigration reform under uh, Ronald Reagan, and I wanted to be a part of 
what I thought might be the last vestiges of some sort of comprehensive immigration reform as embodied in the DACA program deferred action for childhood arrivals here in the U.S. And um, I've pretty much been here at La Raza ever since, first as a pro bono attorney, then on staff as an immigration attorney, and now I'm executive director. Felicidades. I know your journey has um, not been easy, but I know it's been very rewarding, and I know how much love and passion you you have for the work that you do as an attorney and a, as the executive director of, um, of La Raza Centro Legal. So, felicidades por esa trayectoria. Um, today, Amanda, you know, I, I know we've shared this with you in the past and we love to share our journeys on the podcast and invite different guests from different backgrounds to share their own, own journeys. But today we wanted to switch gears a bit and we wanted to focus on the hardships that immigrant women face. And, you know, because we are level of Latina and to us, it's really important to highlight, uh, the women that are leveling up by you know, moving from their country and coming to this country for better opportunities. And we just wanted to highlight them and talk about them. And, um, you know, we can, we can just imagine all the hardships and, um, you know, difficulties that these women, courageous women, I'll say, uh, face when, when they come to this country. So tell us a bit about that and what you see in your practice, uh, the difficulties that women face now, nowadays. Thanks. That's really a great question. And it's, um, I, I just constantly, I, I have to say on behalf of the, we have several attorneys practicing immigration law in our office. Um, and for all of us, we are truly um, just humbled and honored to work with this community of uh, inspiring immigrant women. I mean, we have, um, we have clients who are, you know, women, men, children. Um, But I think in our cultures and a lot of our clients in our immigration law departments are from the Northern Triangle, Central American countries, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala. And of course, we always have a steady stream of Mexicanas también. And um, what we see are women who are incredibly resilient, um, who are tremendously hard workers, very family focused um, as, as mothers, as daughters, as partners to their spouses. Um, or, or um, common law partners, uh, which is quite common in the countries that we serve. Um, and unfortunately, we also see a lot of trauma in the female um, Latina clients that we serve. Um, and we also have some in, in indígenas um, whom we represent. And um, it's always, um, I think, uh, rewarding to work with indígena clients because I, I speak Spanish as a second language and so do they. And so we have that common ground of, you know, oh, no sabes esa palabra, yo tampoco, you know, and we're learning as we go. Um, but I think when you're working with immigrant women, um, one of it's, it's a sad commentary on our nation's immigration laws that one of the only ways that one can um, gain status or documents here in this country in the absence of comprehensive immigration reform, which has been our reality since 1986, is that one has to have suffered. And, um, and that's why a lot of times our clients come to us, either they themselves or their close family member who they bring to support them as they tell their story to us. Um, they'll say, you know, es muy su sufrida, ella es muy sufrida. And that was a word I didn't even know until I started working with our immigrant Latina clients. Um, very telling because that's the only way they can gain status, either uh, for a U visa as a, um, immigrant survivor of a crime 
for um, a T visa for um, survivors of trafficking, of either labor trafficking, sex trafficking, or human trafficking, or an asylum seeker, somebody who's been persecuted in their home country um, and fears harm or worse if they were to be returned. Um, but if I may, I just wanted to uplift the story of one of my uh, recent clients um, who um, was from uh, Guatemala, um, just a real wonderful person with a huge heart. And she was raised by her grandparents, um, her biological parents and many other children. And um, so her grandmother offered to raise her. Um, when she got to the household of her grandparents, unfortunately, she found herself um, being abused um, as um, unfortunately was sexually abused by her grandfather and um, was uh, basically trapped in that household until her grandmother passed away when she was a young teenager of about 12 or 13. And then she was returned to her biological parents' home. Um, when she was there, she really didn't have um, parents who were supportive or loving. And um, so she left that household, formed a partnership with um, a male partner, had a child. And then once he left her, um, she had no choice but to return once again to her biological parents, where unfortunately um, her child was three years old at that point and her biological parents decided to sell her into trafficking. And so they um, gave her a story about an opportunity to work temporarily in the U.S. She thought that was she was going to work in restaurants and would return in a matter of months with money and with um, contacts to perhaps immigrate to the U.S. and bring her daughter with her. Unfortunately, she was sold into um, the sex trade, was trapped in a household in New Jersey for two weeks. Finally, a neighbor heard her and another um, victim of that sex crime pounding on the walls, asking for help. She was rescued and made her way to San Francisco where her brother lived and obtained a trafficking visa, um, which put her on a pathway to status. And ultimately she's um, on a pathway to uh, becoming a lawful permanent resident. She's very close to that. However, um, so she came to us after having gotten her T visa, and this was a, a handful of years ago, we asked her what she needed, and she said she needed help uh, bringing her daughter, who she had been forcibly separated from. And so here at La Raza Centro Legal, we were able to consular process her daughter, and we helped her through that process where she herself had to return to the home country, go back to the parents who had trafficked her, tell them that she was just going to take her daughter for lunch because she showed up out of the blue unexpectedly. Her parents believed her. She took her little daughter, who was then about age um, 10 or 11, and whisked her to safety, got her her visa, and then within a matter of about a week, they were on a plane headed back to San Francisco. So that's a united family where they're living happily now with two other little siblings here in San Francisco. Qué bonito. And I, I imagine wow. that once with these stories, Amanda, like se te llena el corazón. I mean, right? Like there's there's tears, happy tears, oh, sí. right? Totalmente. Sí. sí, tuvimos una fiesta para, para toda la familia cuando regresaron. And it was really lovely, you know, and it was um, special to see this little family these siblings who'd never met one another, right? And it was really beautiful. So it was, it's life transforming work 
that Ceci does, that all of our attorneys do here at The Legal Aid. That is freaking magic. Thank you for doing what you do. And it's beautiful. And I was like on the edge of my seat here, like, wow, this story had so many twists and turns. So thank you for being a vessel of hope and actually acting with these families alongside them to empower them. It's really great work. Clearly, you're right. You and Ceci are doing the really good work. So thank you. Thank you both and your whole team. So tell me a little bit more just about what can folks expect in the situation. I mean, I'm sure we're going to have listeners that'll think, oh my gosh, yeah, I know someone who needs their support. So how else do you support folks over your organization, women specifically, and how do we help recent arrivals that have such limited resources? We're hearing more and more about recent arrivals under the different administrations that we've had. And so what can they expect? How do they get more support at your org? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, um, so a lot of people find us, um, especially asylum seekers um, from, um, you know, from the countries we tend to serve, they get our names from the immigration court system itself. We're on the list of um, trusted legal aids with qualified licensed attorneys who are culturally competent, who are fully bilingual and biliterate in Spanish. And so they know that they can come to us. We've been here for 49 years and we were founded by um, Chicano law students and one uh, Latina teenage activist, thank goodness for her, um, for representing, you know, Mujeres when we were founded so long ago. And um, so we're so proud to continue that tradition and that vision that our founders had to be that, um, that place that can welcome, you know, new arrivals who are Spanish speaking. And um, the ways that we offer our help are really across our four different legal departments. Um, we serve, um, Actually, in Ceci's department, it's the only one where we serve um, uh, low-income clients who are both um, who have status and those who don't. So we serve citizens and non-citizens alike, as long as folks are low-income. And in her department, we serve um, senior citizens, um, 60 and over, young adults with disabilities, 18 to 59. We help them in four primary areas, um, citizenship and green card applications, consumer debt cases. We defend them against... Uh, consumer, consumer debt matters. We also do um, wills, trusts, and estates at no cost to these clients. Um, and we do social security appeals and disability denials that we work on to try to get those um, negative decisions overturned so people can have a steady source of income. And then in our other departments, we represent a lot of employees and primarily undocumented employees here in San Francisco where their employers treat them poorly. And so we frequently see cases of um, employment discrimination, retaliation, um, wage theft. Um, and it's, it's really sad to see, but many employers do take advantage of folks who are recently arrived, knowing that recent arrivals aren't going to know the, the employment and labor laws um, and won't know where to go if they do suffer um, wrongful treatment in the workplace. And so we help them with those claims. And we've recovered many hundreds of thousands of dollars on behalf of employees um, who've suffered these harms in the workplaces. We also have um, two different sides to our immigration departments. We have affirmative applications where we do citizenship green cards. We do DACA applications for young arrivals. We do um, TPS, which is temporary protected status for those countries that are designated as um, eligible for temporary status based on a national, either a natural emergency within their nation or a political um, upheaval situation. And so um, some people have gotten, for, for example, from Honduras or El Salvador, they've had TPS 
or TPS, as they like to call it, since, you know, really the 90s due to civil war and other, um, I think in Honduras, they suffered a horrible earthquake many years ago. Um, and so, and also we do humanitarian visas in that department um, for a lot of different uh, U visas, T visas, VAWA for victims of domestic violence. And then of course we have a large department with three full-time attorneys. And then I maintain a small docket of these cases um, for asylum seekers in um, San Francisco Immigration Court. And so we really, um, we have, we also have a, a mini specialty in LGBTQ plus claims in that department. And um, I think folks listening probably know that our, our Latina, Lat Latina, Latino cultures sometimes are um, tough cultures to be um, LGBTQ plus in. And so um, the stories that that community shares with us when they arrive are particularly heartbreaking because um, they have suffered, in addition to the, the, um, the trauma that a lot of our clients suffer, they are um, battling against um, societal norms which do not favor um, their, their um, lived experience and the people that they love. Wow, you are incredible. Vero and I are on the side here chatting like, oh my God, they do so much. They're so cool. Oh my God, that too. Oh my God, yes. Like, <laughs> it's incredible. It's like literally chills, Amanda, thinking about everyone that you're serving and how empowering this has to be. I mean, you could have stopped at the first thing you said. I was like, social security, trust, all that is complicated. And I know what I'm talking about over here, right? We can afford, you know, support and access. I can't imagine my mom working through any of those forms. I can't imagine her not having us, for instance, and she's, you know, an immigrant herself and English is definitely her second language. Everything that you do, it's incredible and there's so much. So thank you for doing all of it. It's, it's very empowering and exciting and it just makes me feel like so much pride to know Ceci and to know that that's what you're doing every day, killing it alongside Amanda. One of the really interesting things that we wanted to point out during this discussion is just this dialogue that we're hearing a lot lately, uh, especially as it relates to Ukrainian refugees right now seeking asylum and how there's a big issue with colorism and straight out racism as it relates to asylum that is sought by black and brown refugees versus those that are now you know, coming from Ukraine or other countries that may be seen as European or wider. I don't know if the doors are slammed shut more so on black and brown folks, but I, I have a feeling that that's the case and that that's probably gonna be your take, but tell us more about that. Yeah, that has been in the headlines quite a bit. And um, we have colleagues at a number of different legal aids here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And some of them have been on the border, um, you know, uh, really just to bear witness and to try to offer whatever assistance they can as practicing immigration attorneys to asylum seekers of all types. And definitely there is a large surge right now of Ukrainian refugees, um, particularly uh, mothers with children. Um, and they're trying to trying to cross. They can't fly directly into the U.S. because they won't be allowed in. Um, but they can get to Mexico. And so they're trying at the land crossings. And so colleagues of ours, um, specifically at a, a really wonderful um, technical support um, immigration practice called the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies. Um, one of our attorney colleagues named Blaine Bookie was in um, Tijuana last month in March. And while she was there, there was a lot of news coverage around this. You probably have heard about it. But while she was on the border assisting, you know, the Northern Triangle asylum seekers and Haitian asylum seekers um, in particular, because there are quite a few down there at the moment trying to cross, 
um, she found um, a Ukrainian mother crying with a couple of teenagers and um, she offered, you know, to try to help however she could. And um, yes, I think her, her input and there, she gave a news interview and basically what she noted was that, you know, currently, and we, uh, those of us practicing at the moment, we know that there's a um, CDC health, public health law called Title, Title 42, which is um, basically our nation's, you know, CDC can um, prohibit entry from migrants if they have a public health reason. And this Title 42 law, um, based on COVID and the pandemic, they've been that's been utilized to prevent asylum seekers and migrants of all types from entering our borders. And so what that's led to ever since the pandemic began under the Trump administration who started this Title 42, it's led to this incredible logjam of families, you know, camping out in Mexico waiting for, it's like a tiny funnel of just a few people. And so um, before the Ukrainian crisis started, unaccompanied minors um, were being let in in larger numbers compared to asylum seeking families from the Northern Triangle countries in Mexico. Now, what our colleagues at CGRS are telling us and other immigration attorneys who are going down to the border, they're telling us that Ukrainians are being given preferential treatment. Um, a lot of the male Ukrainians, especially if they're under 60, they need to stay in Ukraine by mandate to fight in the, in the war against Russia, but the women and the children are arriving. And so they are being allowed in in greater numbers they're getting exceptions to the Title 42 public health prohibition from entry um, for the migrant community. And so some of the reactions that um, Latinas, asylum-seeking Latinas from Mexico and Northern Triangle countries are having is that they're saying, you know, it gives us hope that somebody's getting in. And so that's that's a good thing. But, um, but it's unfortunate that we can see that very few of us people who are brown or black are getting through. And so just one quick statistic um, that exists currently is that um, there's a nonprofit immigration law group called Al Otro Lado, which has offices on the U.S. side and in Tijuana. And so they advocate for exceptions to the Title 42 prohibition of asylum entry currently. And they've applied for 1,000 exemptions for Haitian families but only 21% of those have been approved. And so they're fighting, 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 but they notice that unfortunately black migrants in particular from Haiti are being treated um, in a disparate manner and being denied entry. You know, the white um, Ukrainian, especially women with children are being granted exemptions with greater numbers. And so it's unfortunate to see this, but it is the reality. And. So we know it's the reality. We realize it's the reality. So what is your suggestion for us? How can we support that? Can we make noise about that? Can we give back to these organizations? What can we do to bring attention to this absolute disparity and injustice that's going on? Yeah, I think um, some of the ways we can um, bring light to it is just, you know, like I think this podcast is a great way, you know, and um, I think what we're seeing is that, you know, even though our constitution is meant to protect um really the constitution is designed to protect anyone within our borders. So whether you have status or you don't, you have, you have rights, you have rights to due process. And there needs to be, um, based on constitutional protections for all of us, you know, um, 
we, the U.S. is party to international treaties saying that anyone can, has right, a right to get here and to make their claim for asylum. So if we try to prevent people and especially with arbitrary um, race-based um, criterion for denying entry, I mean, that's just completely contrary to international law and to our constitution. So I think we need to uplift that. You know, we have, we have a system that's inherently unfair right now. And um, I hate to say it, but if we had other countries, you know, that were, um, that were, you know, in Europe or, you know, um, adjoining Russia or other nations that are inhabited by white people, if we saw more white people arriving at our border, I hate to say it, but based on what we've seen, we would once again see many more white families being admitted and black and brown families being denied entry. So yeah, the more we can tell these stories and shine a light, I think the better. We could also look for nonprofit organizations working along the border um, who serve brown and black migrants and try to contribute to them financially. Wow, like just this whole time I'm, I'm, I'm listening to what's happening at the border now with, with us and how your experience with the families of the Northern Triangle and, and Haitian families versus the Ukrainian families, even though that's now was it the experience of uh, your colleague of it being one particular family that she um, encountered, but we obviously were seeing this in the news and headlines consistently and constantly. But when you were talking about La Raza, and um your center and how it was founded like um when you said chicanas i'm like my like my little pelito stuck up because i remember like learning the, the chicana term in college and i was like gung-ho i am a chicana that's when i first learned the identity of us as mujeres living here especially in california there's that feeling of the chicana and you know we learned about the chicano movement and all these great things and i didn't hear or learn about any of this until i got to college right and once that was there, like the whole fierce Latina Chicana mujer came out and we have not been able to put her away, I feel. Um, but there's great pride in that. And I love how you talked about how La Raza has um, so many things you offer for everyone. And it's like vast services. And one part that stood out was that you were culturally competent to help these people. The beauty is being able to have organizations established that understand the culturally where people are coming from to be able to understand their story and know that oh we thought it was bad but being able to communicate with someone in your language or as close to your language as possible is key to getting the the the, the, the help that you need right and that when you said that i'm like it's so important i think that that we do this and not just think of like well we're in the united states let's implement only english serving and you know if you come to us sorry you have to bring your own translator <laughs> and <laughs> and go through this whole difficulty but what you also provide is like not just for the recent um immigrants and the newcomers to this country looking having hope for a better life but you also provide support for people that are already here that don't know where to go. I mean, like Irene mentioned, you know, services that her mom couldn't imagine. Like my, her mom at least speaks English and she chooses not to, you know, use it if she doesn't want to. That's perfect. That's her choice. Then there's people that just don't know. They've been here forever. Yes. <laughs> my parents included in that, that don't know 
uh, you know, they'll be like, they know, te saludan and have a buenas, buenas tardes, good evening, good morning, bye. <laughs> but to have a conversation, good luck. My mom you, can speak it, but she definitely can't read it. You know, so it's like, you know, yeah, it's that very different. Yeah, yeah. She's not going to be filling out forms any day soon. Yeah. No, doña Inés, no se deje, que bueno, you know, like, <laughs> but it, it's, it's, it's at least, you know, there's, there's somewhere people can go to find this guidance because sometimes, you know, as kids, we get tired of it. Like, oh, you know what? I'm done. I you find help from somewhere else. And I mean, we're, we're not any of those kids, but there are some kids out there that get tired of it. You know, like, what are you doing? Then you have these lost parents. Like, ¿qué hacemos? You know, con la casa que compramos. ¿Qué hacemos? ¿Cómo le dejamos todos nuestros hijos? And, and they don't know how to plan for that. So I know this is um, very different, but I just want to give you like so many props because I feel that you're really speaking to a lot of, you know, our listeners' parents, our listeners' grandparents, um, family members and this will be of great value to many um but i was also in shock to learn that the last time we had amnesty was in 1986 yes it's yeah it's been way too long and um yeah it's really um you know a big part of what we do and you know we're we're um so fortunate that here in the bay area and i think you know the la area san diego you know we have we have a lot of legal aids in the major urban centers across our state where we need more legal aids are in our rural areas, you know, La Valle Central, you know, Modesto, Fresno, Bakersfield, these areas. Um, and even, you know, up north, you know, where we have the wine industry, um, there's a tremendous need. But even here in the Bay Area, we have San Mateo County Coast, where we have farm workers working in the flower industry. There's no legal aid down there. So we even, even though we have a lot of free legal services in our urban areas, there are a lot of parts of the state where we really need more um, of these um, really, you know, really valuable um, law offices that serve communities who cannot afford to pay a private attorney. Um, but yeah, I just thank you for saying that. It is important work. And I feel like a big part of what um, legal aid does uh, for the community is really alleviate that human suffering, you know, because our community, you know, as as and most of the time, our clients are Latinas, right? Because we, as women, we bring, we carry the weight of our family's problems, right? We are the problem solvers, and some of us are serve as the little, you know, traductoras from when we're tiny for our moms, like you guys were mentioning, Irene and Beto. You know, um, my grandmother never learned English. She never wanted actually to migrate here, but my, apparently my grandfather did, and that's how she found herself here, and. You know, um, I think that what we realize in the years we've been doing this is um, that, you know, our the mothers in our households, you know, they, they stay awake at night worrying about their children's DACA applications. You know, even, you know, elderly grandmothers come to us and Ceci, I'm sure you have stories about this. They come and you think you're going to help them with their legal problem, but really what they're worried about, you know, maybe you will. But they also want to tell you about their adult son's problem because, you know, there's a saying, right? You're only as happy as your least happy child, right? And even as these 80-year-old grandmothers come to us, they're, what are they most worried about? Actually, it's not themselves. They're worried about their children. And that child could be 60, <laughs> but they're still carrying that burden, you know, pobrecitas. 
you know, and so we're, we're so humbled and grateful that we're in the business of alleviating that suffering. Sharing that, it just shows how much of that connection is. And that is in our DNA um, through our, our, our Mexican moms, our Latina moms, where, where you come from. Um, it's just like you, you worry about others. And it's like, sometimes you're like, I want to give zero fucks. I really just want to live my life, you know? And it's very challenging to do that. And I apologize for dropping an F-bomb, but it's like, we kind of are, are still in a sense, like we have this responsibility to our family. I, 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 I know this is, I, I'm going to segue into our next question, but I wanted to kind of mention like, yes, last night I was, you know, of course, not being able to sleep and I'm scrolling on Instagram and I see this image where it says like our parents were tasked with the job of survival and as first generation kids and our children, it's like we are tasked with the, with self-actualization, right? But even, and there's some parts of it where like there's this gap, but we don't fully understand because where they, where everything that they experience and the sacrifice and the suffering, because at the end of the day, they try to make things like, no te preocupes por mí, go do your thing. And even when we're trying to do our things, they're always in the back of our mind. Am I doing the right thing for my family, for myself? And if family's always in the back of our mind, especially our parents. Um, so with a lot of, you know, like DACA students, they're here, their parents probably aren't, but they have the support of other families and, and people that here that care about them. Like in the sense of immigration reform or having any kind of amnesty, do you see that any, any work moving forward with this current administration or do you see anything likely to happen within our lifetime, you could say? Yeah. I mean, maybe hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll see that. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I, I think that if there's any group that is going to be lined up for um, lawful permanent residency to be green card holders, it would be the DACA recipients, the DACA youth. And, and then that, um, that, whole basket of youth who, you know, once Trump came into office, he said, well, we're only going to accept renewals. We're not going to take any new DACA applications. So we've been in this horrible um, limbo where we have a group of folks who got in before Trump cut off the initial applications. And then we have a whole bunch of other people who wanted to apply, but didn't get their application in on time or, you know, didn't turn 15 uh, anyway, you know, it's just unfortunate, you know, they, they missed the deadline. So, um, I'm hopeful that that group of people will be sort of the, the modern version of immigration reform, a comprehensive immigration reform. I also hope that in our lifetimes, we'll see, um, Congress pass, um, comprehensive immigration reform for people who've lived here for many, many years, who have children who, um, were born here. Um, and, I don't know if you guys remember, but when Obama was president, he announced a program that he wanted to implement, which was called DAPA. And it was for um, parents of children who were citizens here. And um, it would be lovely to see that. And, and what, you know, in our nation's long history, um, it used to be, you know, pre-1986, if you look at the 115 or 20 years prior to that year, Every 25 years or so, Congress would enact legislation, and and it always, unfortunately, it had you know it was done uh, in a racially discriminatory manner. So we had you know Chinese Exclusion Act, we had a bunch of uh, really discriminate discriminatory laws um, against various populations of color. But we were seeing every 25 years or so immigration reform that looked like 
this. It was, you pay a fine, you know, several hundred dollars up to a thousand. You show that you have a good clean record. You haven't been arrested or detained or committed any crime here in the U.S. And you show proof of your presence for a span of at least seven to 10 years. And then assuming you can get all those documents together and submit your application, then um, the federal government would place you on a pathway, albeit a long one of several years, towards your green card. And so the fact that we haven't seen that since 1986 is really troubling because we're moving towards this uh, conservative climate. And I think we're seeing it now on the Supreme Court. We're looking at not just a lack of comprehensive immigration reform, but we're also looking at, you know, rolling back of certain um, civil, civil rights and laws that protected women's reproductive rights like Roe v. Wade. And so it's, I think it's a symptom of a larger problem in our society, which is um, troubling for anyone who feels that, um, you know, we want to protect one another's civil and human rights. Um, and so we just have to, you know, stay vigilant and, and keep fighting and um, keep lifting up the voices of people who don't have um, status um, because, you know, I would love to, I would love to, nothing more than to have a comprehensive immigration reform that would make us so busy that we would have to, you know, keep this office just humming like, you know, six days a week, hire more staff, you know, expand to meet the need. It would be a lovely thing. Um, and so I'm an optimist. I believe we'll see it in some form. That's good to know. I'm an optimist as well. And I, I'm, I'm like, I'm not, a, it's not toxic positivity. I just like to see the lighter thing of things. Like I know that there's possibility and we work, we do the hard work to make those things happen. So I feel that I'm going to be very hopeful with you on that as well. Um, but I know that we are getting to the end of our session with you. And one particular question, particular question we ask all of our guests that come on is um, what advice or words of wisdom would you share with your 25 year old self, Amanda? Yes, I love this question because I happen to be the parent of two 20 um, somethings. And so it's um, constantly on my mind. And um, so I would say, I, you know, your 20s are such key years, I think, in one's life. And I know for me, they were, they were super formative. And, um, and I think there are moments with, with a lot of doubts. And um, especially now with social media and the pressure um, that, that people have because they're, they're observing their peers who appear to be thriving both in their careers and in their personal lives, which I didn't have uh, when I was in my 20s. And so I was blissfully unaware of exactly how, how seemingly successful all of my peers were. So I didn't have that pressure. But I think if I could go back and talk to my 25-year-old self, I would definitely say that, um, that you know, you're not supposed to love your first few jobs out of college. You know, what they're supposed to do is you're supposed to kind of hate those first few jobs and then it will launch you to a little bit closer to where you need to be. With each successive job, you get closer to your career path, to your calling, so to speak. And I think just having the faith that it's okay to like live with that unsettled uneasiness in your career in your 20s, as long as you're getting closer and closer and closer, then that's where you need to be. So that's one of the things. Um, the other thing I would say to my 25-year-old self 
is, and that it's, it's a wonderful to believe it firmly and wholeheartedly now, is that life is too short to be afraid. You know, I think when we're in we're 20, our 20s as Latinas, as women, um, it, you know, just so many things are frightening, whether it's a presentation that we're giving at work or how we present ourselves, especially as compared to other women in society, right? Um, or just goals that we that we have for ourselves that maybe we don't even want to um, say out loud or write it even in a journal, much less take a, take an affirmative step toward achieving, right? You know, I mean, life is short. If you have a dream, a goal, a hope, just go for it, you know? Um, and so I, I think I would share that with myself. Another thing as now putting on my mom hat, you know, having a mija and a mijo in my life and their average age is 25. So I think I would share seeing them go through um, relationship, um, you know, navigating relationships, navigating <clears throat> both meeting people through friends, romantic partners or online on social media apps or whatnot. I would say that in spite of the risk to one's heart, I would say that love is worth risking your tender heart. Um, and it can be hard to realize that when you're in your 20s, right? If you have a heartbreak, you just want to wall yourself off. Um, but I hope that people take the risk. Um, and then another thing, I'll, I'll leave this as my final piece of advice would be, um, I felt that in my 20s, I had a lot of insecurities around um, whether it was how I looked or was I professional enough? Um, was I bringing my authentic self to work as a Chicana Latina in the workplace or just in my whole life with my friendships? I had a lot of friends who were not Latinas because when I was in law school, we were so few and far between. And I was there when I was 25. And um, I would say that everyone has insecurities. It's not just you. And um, I would say that if you have a growth mindset, then it, it's really wonderful to try to um, have that sense of humility, right? We can learn something from everyone, someone younger, someone older, someone from a different walk of life, um, whether they have a lot of education or no education at all, we can learn from anyone. Um, and so that humility is wonderful. Um, and so what I tried to remind myself at 25, and, and I think it helped me get through some tough times, um, rather than saying I'm better than my peers, what I would say is, you know, I'm, I deserve everything that my most competent or my most, the, the peer that I admire the most, I deserve everything that she has because I'm just as competent and capable and deserving as she is. And that helped me sort of open myself up to good possibilities that I think if I had a more negative mindset, right, or self-doubt, if I allowed myself to listen to that little voice that was self-doubting, I wouldn't have had such wonderful opportunities. So those are my thoughts. Those are all great. I'm over here nodding. I just took like a page and a half of notes from just like <laughs> your, what you shared right now. It's, um, I feel that uh, for a lot of those, they definitely resonated with me. Um, the jobs I had, I've had so many jobs in my life. It's ridiculous. And I'm like, okay, no, learn from that though. Let's move on. Okay. Learn from that one. And even some jobs are like relationships, right? Like I should leave this one, but I do have bills to pay, but I need to go because I've outgrown it. Um, and then life is too short to be afraid. I feel that there were very few moments where I, that I did have those 
those moments of like, oh, I don't know if I could do this. Um, but thankfully they had the right support to be able to just get through that part. But the part that really hits home is, you know, navigating relationships at that young age, like you're probably getting to know yourself and imagine trying to create this relationship with somebody else. And I love that you say it's love is worth taking the risk on your tender heart. Like we don't realize how tender our hearts are. We're still very young. We, for, for some of us, we recently left our parents home, you know, we're just getting to know who we are. And when you share yourself with someone else and they don't, in a sense, appreciate who you are and what you bring to the table, it's so heartbreaking. And I've, I've gone through that so many times. My mom's like, yeah, deja de enamorarte. <laughs> yeah, por favor, you know? <laughs> oh my yeah. goodness. But, and, and I love that, you know, with, in your twenties, we have a lot of clients that we work with and some of them are in that transition, like that age, right? They're in that moment of like really learning who they are. And there's all these insecurities and they bring that to work, you know, as professionals and, and, and they have this confidence in their personal life, but then it's like, they are afraid to bring it to their professional life or they're very confident at work because they're like, Oh, I know I learned how to do this. And then when they go into their personal lives, they're like, oh, I really suck at life and I really suck at this. But I'm like, have that confidence flow over, let it tip over into your life because you're doing something great here, which means you can do it here as well. Absolutely. And it just takes a little work and a little bit of like reframing your mindset and knowing that I love how you said that you deserve everything your peer has um, instead of like, no, I'm jealous or no, I am not good enough. It's more like, you know what? I know that I'm competent. I know that what I can do and I deserve that as well. And I feel that as Latinas, first generation women, it's really hard to recognize that, that we do deserve it. And we're always like, earn, earn, earn. Well, you're going to still do the work. It doesn't mean that because you deserve it doesn't mean you're not going to do the work. It just yes. feels that, you know, that once you earn it, just know like that you accomplished it, you got it done and you accept it because many of us are like, well, I guess now I have to go on for the next thing. Like, you know, enjoy the vastness of your greatness at that moment and accept who you are and know that where you're at is what you deserve and you deserve more. Todavía. Tip of the day yesterday, we were talking about money on our Instagram and the whole concept there was about, we deserve more money. We deserve to have the finer things in life. Like we are worthy of those things. And I, I think that's such a key shift in our lives as Latinas, as Latinos in our culture. It's not selfish. It's not right. egoic. It's not full of entitlement. It's la It's like the last thing that it is. Like us as first gen gritty kids, like there was no ego there. Like there was no, we're trying to survive like our parents said, right? That'll said they were surviving. So we were kind of duplicating some of that growing up. Sure, we had it easier, but we were also growing up in these situations where we, for whatever reason, were dealt the card we were dealt. And there's a lot of guilt also in that. And there's a lot of shame in that. And there's a lot of negativity in that. And deserving becomes the last of the things that you sometimes feel, right? So this deserving concept I love, I get so hung up on. My kids and I say this affirmation that is, we deserve a great family and we've got one. And we've said it for years, for years, for years. And as of late, I've always felt like I deserve wealth. Like I deserve to have money. I deserve to be okay with that. That's what we deserve. And it is beautiful because you said I deserve what my peers have. Yes. And it could be whatever they have. It could be the dog that they have. It could be the house that they have. It could be the peace that they have. It could be the time that they have. It doesn't have to be material, right? Like just this deserving idea I think is so beautiful. So our tip of the day is whatever you want, you deserve it, mija. Go get it. <laughs> you can have it. 
sin pena, without fear. That was your last point. Like no fear. You deserve all these wonderful things. And also you deserve to be passionate and excited about this issue and to give back and to be fired up at the end of this episode to give back to these issues. So thank you. I love that deserving point. And that's our tip of the day. And Amanda, you even mentioned it yourself. Like, no sé qué nos pasa. Like, our, 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 we're just like, nos pasamos de buenas a veces. You know, like you were talking about the women at the border. Like, no, I understand. But it gives us hope. It gives us hope still that we surpass, you know, it's like, no, yeah. have some rage. <laughs> I know. Have a little bit of rage. Like, I deserve that spot. Give you me know? that spot. Yeah. Yes. So it's Absolutely. Like, I love our people. I love our gente. Like the women that, that are, you know, who have come before us and the women coming after us. It's just like, we need, we, we have the fire. Let's find it. Um, and it's beautiful that we want lo mejor for everybody else around us as well, but know that we deserve it as well. So when it, when it comes to the moments of like having to speak up and having a little bit of that rage and expressing it the right way, then let's do it. You know? Um, yes. So to those mujeres on the border, I send them all of our love, our strength, and we're going to find ways to see how we can, you know, support. And we thank you so much again for having, for making time with us today and having this conversation. It was great. I learned a lot. And um, thank you I really so much, Vero, Ceci, Irene. It's been a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. We love thank having you. Thank you. And to all the mujeres and that listen to this podcast, and if you're not a mujer, it's all good. I mean, anyone who listened to our podcast, you had so much to learn today, so many gems and so many great things that we shared. Um, feel free to um, contact us if there's anything you want to discuss regarding this topic and keep the conversation going. You can always find us. Um, on our social media platforms. Our handle is at Level of Latina, or you can always find us on our website, any information you need, learn about our one-on-one -on -one coaching, our guilt-free squad, where we support other mujeres going through, going through the damn thing and growing and leveling up in every aspect of their life. Go to our website, it's levelaplatina.com. And also, if you're a small business and want to promote your business, your product, your service on our show, please do so. Give yourself a, a business shout out. Or if you want to give some love to one of your comadres or homegirls and tell them how great they are on our show, we'd love to have you on there too. You can check that out on our website as well. And other than that, if you want to shoot us an email, you're welcome to, to keep this conversation going in the topic of the day or tips of the day that our email is admin at levelaplatina.com. So with that, we wrap up our show today. And thank you. Thank you so much again, Amanda. Thank you, Ceci and Irene. And thank you to everyone that listened. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you so much. Thank you.